archaeology has been uh, key to understanding uh, research uh, in, in what I would call the, the primary functional spaces at the university. Um, uh, in the academical village, uh, the alleys uh, dead-ended or led into the courtyards, the spaces behind the pavilions, and those spaces and those alleys, the historic roads, have been used as utility corridors for 200 years now. And so um, one positive thing about doing utility work at the university is you are digging the same corridors that were used for two, two centuries. Mm-hmm. But for the courtyards in particular, uh, we have found through our research uh, that they, uh, ha- they were very functional spaces. And uh, by the mid-19th century, were very private spaces, too. Many of them were uh, fenced with palisade fences, um, and they had wells, they had privies, they had, uh, it was a coal yard space. Uh, So, uh, and these are uh, concepts and uses of space which developed after Jefferson died. I don't, when the Academical Village was first designed, uh, there was really no function assigned to those spaces at the end of the alley, at the ends of the alleys. Um, I think Jefferson uh, noted that perhaps a woodyard could be placed in that location, but really didn't give any guidelines. And 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 uh, those spaces were left to the use of the occupants of the pavilions. Uh, so we find each occupant uh, using that space uh, based on their needs. And it was a space where African Americans, both free and enslaved uh, individuals, would have uh, utilized, uh, performed work activities, maybe tended uh, animals, uh, and um, it would have been a a center of activity along with uh, the gardens as well, the adjacent garden spaces next to the pavilions. Uh, Do you find that that evidence reinforces the general characterization um, that uh, we've been hearing more recently, that the University of Virginia, in fact, was a plantation. Is that a defensible uh, suggestion uh, in your mind? And does the archaeological record, uh, how might it differentiate between an actual antebellum plantation and the academical village? Well, I I think um, setting the academical village up uh, as a plantation is a little bit more complex. Um, By my mind, uh, and through the archival research and archaeology that we have uh, accomplished at the university, uh, it's it's, uh, not as simple as that. I don't think uh, one can accurately characterize the academical village as a plantation in the stereotypical sense, with a big house and the small supporting structures and a a large slave population. There are many, many characteristics, however, uh, that are similar to the southern antebellum plantation. Um, you had uh, many families of, of individuals who were living together in a tight space. Uh, you have activities, similar activities that were carried out. Um, the differences, in my, in my opinion, are that, um, first of all, uh, the white professors, the white hotel keepers, did not own the land they lived on. Uh, They were given a temporary lease of their facilities and of their adjoining space, what was typically called in that period the tenement that they were responsible for. Um, And those owners came and went. 
Um, and so there are dramatic differences. I, I would characterize it almost uh, uh, as a small urban setting where you had hundreds of individuals, black individuals, white individuals, living shoulder to shoulder. And um, yes, race was an important issue there, and uh, it is the lens which we have to focus on in the, the pre-emancipation period. Um, but, but calling it a plantation and comparing it to a plantation, I think uh, uh, one needs to be careful uh, from our point of view. Um, there, there are... Uh, the types of things that we excavate and we find uh, are found in similar locations throughout Albemarle County in the south. The material record of slavery is very similar. The ceramics, the glass, the, the uh, animal bone. We can say a lot about the diet of enslaved individuals. We can say a lot about the possessions they had and the spaces they worked and lived in. And those can be compared and contrast to other collections uh, and other sites uh, throughout the region. Um, but, I, but I think uh, for interpreting the academical village uh, from an archaeological perspective as a plantation, I, I think you need to be cautious. Mm-hmm. I'd like to step um, a little bit past the university now, mm-hmm. and at least the university core, mm-hmm. and ask you to talk a little bit about what uh, you have learned through archaeological investigation for a territory around the university. Mm-hmm. As we're thinking about the university in the 19th and into the 20th century, um, what have you learned about um, uh, the African-American community and the relationship between the university and the African-American community in any of those kinds of spaces? Yeah, we, I, I uh, did a good bit of work at, at what is now known as the Foster site, uh, the property uh, adjacent to and south of the university where the uh, South Lawn facilities are, have been constructed. Um, and, and that particular area uh, was the site of a free black uh, household initially in the 1830s. Uh, uh, Catherine Foster, a free black woman, and her descendants lived there and owned that property for uh, about 70 years uh, before it was sold out of their family from about the 1830s to the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and she and her family lived and worked there uh, adjacent to the Foster site, both surrounding it east and, and north of it, was an antebellum community and later postbellum community called Canada. Uh, in my opinion, a, a reference to our uh, country to the north, uh, where uh, uh, enslaved individuals uh, ultimately uh, traveled to, to escape uh, slavery. Um, and so I've done a good bit of research, archaeological, archaeological research on that particular property, uh, identifying, documenting this uh, domestic site, but also historical research on the surrounding community. And what we have found is that um, with the establishment of the university in the 18, 1825 and throughout the uh, first few decades of its operation, uh, that... Uh, both north and south of the community, uh, there developed uh, free black communities, uh, individuals who provided services to the university, to faculty members, to students. And and they were composed of uh, African-American men and women who were laundresses, who uh, did the laundry and washing. They chopped and provided firewood. They were shoemakers. They were cooks. 
uh, all of the types of typical professions in the uh, pre-emancipation period that a free black might hold, either in an urban or a rural uh, context. Um, and we know these communities existed. Many of them uh, were uh, households that were rented by African Americans, leased by African Americans. Very few of them were owned. Uh, Catherine Foster, uh, Kitty Foster being one of the few exceptions to that. Uh, and then um, during the Civil War and immediately after it, those communities uh, began to slowly disappear. Um, uh, Canada, south of the university, was initially, uh, in the immediate post-war period, uh, a mixed-race community. Uh, there were many whites and blacks living together in adjacent households right next to each other, uh, both in the Venable Lane area, the Brandon Avenue area, and throughout the 1870s and 1880s, it was very much a working-class community, uh, typical occupations that we would call today uh, working-class. Uh, but by the late 19th century, there's this transformation ongoing where you have... Um, uh, wealthy white individuals, corporations, uh, buying up large estates, large parcels, uh, subdividing them, uh, selling and developing them. And frequently these neighborhoods uh, had clauses in them where uh, the property owner had to agree that they would not uh, have any individuals of African-American descent living or working on the property unless they were servants in the household, uh, they would agree not to sell uh, the property to uh, African Americans. And, and again, this is pretty typical of the larger South. It's not unique to Charlottesville, but it certainly did happen here. Um, there's a, a, a project that's ongoing right now uh, on Brandon Avenue. It's a redevelopment into the administrative and, and residential area for the university. Uh, but in doing some research uh, for that particular project in the Brandon Avenue neighborhood, there are some very rich uh, first-hand descriptions of what the Canada neighborhood and that Brandon Avenue neighborhood uh, was like, both in the immediate uh, Civil War period and in the late 19th century. And these uh, descriptions all come from uh, depositions, chancery causes, cases that are, are found in the Library of Virginia. But they describe... Uh, the neighborhood initially as, uh, just as we know it, a very mixed, uh, uh, mixed-race uh, residential area with working-class individuals. However, um, in describing the character of the individuals that lived there, uh, the African-Americans are described as um, individuals who didn't take care of their property, uh, who didn't clean up after themselves. Uh, their properties, their, their uh, houses are generally described as falling down and not of the first class. Um, and this, uh, in the depositions for that neighborhood, it's clearly focusing on the African-American individuals. And, and there's a reason that this occurred. Um, by the late 1890s, uh, many white developers had their eyes on that larger Brandon Avenue neighborhood um, and um, there was uh, a corporation formed by several uh, white university faculty members uh, whose sole aim was to acquire land in that area and develop it as a neighborhood where only desirable individuals uh, could live. Uh, 
by that, they meant white individuals of a certain class. Um, and that, that did happen in the late 1890s. That whole area was uh, repurchased, and um, there were racial clauses written into the deeds uh, that prohibited African Americans from living or purchasing there and the property. Uh, and uh, that area was developed uh, subsequently in the very early 20th century as a student residential neighborhood with uh, hotels and then individual houses and then much, much later uh, dormitories in the second and third quarter of the 20th century. So it's interesting from our research to see the transformation of these neighborhoods through the lens of race and, and how that was influenced by uh, prominent university faculty, uh, Paul Barringer being one of them, uh, and several others uh, who held positions of uh, importance at the University of Virginia.